Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. Conversations with creatives, entrepreneurs, thinkers and dreamers who also happen to be surfers. My name's Imi Barno, and I am your host. George Bernard Shaw once said, We don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. And that's exactly what crossed my mind when I got to speak with my guest, Felipe Pomar. Felipe Pomar is a surfing legend and is listed in the Encyclopedia of Surfing as one of the most prominent surfers of his generation. His career in surfing started in the 60s and he's in, he's got an incredible life story to share. I was truly honoured to sit down for a chat with him. He was the first ISF World Surfing Champion in 1965. He's an outstanding athlete and has got an incredible track record. Um, and during the conversation, he shares his experience of that day that changed the rest of his life. Um, what was quite interesting is that, and it's probably not surprising for a surfer, but he turned down an acting career at MGM just after having won the 1965 World Surf Championship. It's funny because when Philippe describes what it's like to surf in the 60s, it's as if you're transposed into a Slim Aaron's photo. In 1974, Felipe was training with his best mate, Pitty Block, and was unfortunately trapped in one of the biggest earthquakes Peru has ever had to face. As only a true surfer would do, they both decided to risk their lives and surf the tsunami that followed. Felipe tells us the story of this doomsday catastrophe and how he actually came out alive. P.S. kids, don't do this at home. This and other terrifying experience, uh, losing a friend to the ocean, could have made Felipe give up big wave surfing forever. But as he said, when the horse bucks you off, you just have to get back on. Felipe has had a life filled with adventure and adrenaline. It's not a surprise that at the age of 75, he still gets out to surf every day. But in fact, it was an autoimmune disease that triggered Felipe into looking into alternative medicinal treatments and to study longevity. In this episode, we talk about how Felipe still manages to be flexible, energised and ready to surf every day without second thoughts. And there are some really cool tips and interesting things to take from this episode about longevity and the use of high doses of vitamins. In fact, case in point, Felipe has become a longevity coach and co-founded an organisation called Surf Till 100. It encourages people of all ages to develop a sustainable lifestyle and obviously the objective is to surf until you're 100 years old. Felipe is a living, breathing example of this remarkable findings and in fact, thanks to his astonishing regime, he actually beat his 1968 paddle race time by two minutes but at the age of 70. I highly recommend listening to the whole conversation though. Uh, this is the journey of a hero and it's not over yet. If you find the episode too long for you, the joys of podcasting mean that you can always pause and resume the episode when you feel like it. There's so much information to be taken out of this conversation and Philippe is such a humble, adorable and radiant human to talk to. I wouldn't miss out. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please welcome my guest, Felipe Pomar. Hello, Felipe, and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. How are you today? Hello, Amy. 
Yes, Jimmy, I'm great. Thank you. The sun is shining outside and it's a beautiful day. Fantastic. Maybe before we start, um, you could introduce yourself to the listeners. Okay, but I'm better at answering questions, so I will be brief. I was born in Peru. Actually, I was born in 1943. And as a child, I was very overweight and I did not like sports. I constantly had my mother writing me little notes so that I'd get out of the physical education class. And when I was about 12 years old, my mother, what's the word? She inscribed me in a swimming school. And so that turned out to be very good for me because I lost weight and I kind of learned a little bit about sports but I found totally boring because it was just swimming back and forth on a 25-meter pool. And about two years later, a good friend of my family took me to a surfing club. Uh, It's called Club Waikiki, Mm -hmm. and it was started in Peru in in the early 40s. And after spending hours and hours swimming back and forth in a pool, surfing was just amazing. And I just totally fell in love with it. Oh, that's fantastic. So what was Club Waikiki like in the 60s? Uh, Well, that's right. Actually, I started going there in the mid 50s. Wow. And it was it was amazing to me. I was like a 14 year old boy. And most of the members were in their 30s and 40s and were very fit and they were all excellent surfers. And, you know, some of them were owners of businesses. And and so I, I was very lucky and very impressed and very fortunate to have them take me in as a friend when I was just a very young person. Wow. And and what were the surfboards like at that period? Because this was the beginning of modern surfing. Right. My first board was made out of balsa wood. Mm-hmm. And my friend who was the family friend who took me to the club, he shaped it. He wasn't really a shaper, but somehow he said, I'll make you a board. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I was very happy. And I think it was about five years later that they started importing balsa wood. No, I'm sorry, foam boards okay. from California. Some hobby boards were imported. And my second board was a hobby, and it, it was made out of foam. Wow. How did the starting off at the age of 14 um, at the Club Waikiki actually lead you to winning the world championship in 1965? Uh, when I started going to Club Waikiki, there was only one other person who was my age that was at the club. So him and I became very close friends. And his, okay, so his brother-in-law was Peru's big wave surfing champion at that time. So his name was Pancho. So Pancho was a Peruvian 
big wave surfing champion and Pancho would take us down south to where the big waves were. And the three of us would normally be the only people in the water. As a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, all the times that we went down to surf the big waves, there was never anybody else there. <laughs> so we were the only three people that were surfing it on a regular basis. And uh, so I went straight pretty much from learning into big waves. And uh, that's really how I got started. If we sort of fast forward to the... Uh, 1965 World Surfing Championships. Uh, what were the conditions, and what did it feel like to be out there with the with the other sort of runners up of world champions? Okay, so that's a good story. <laughs> so in 1960, I believe, 61, <laughs> John Severson, who started Surfer Magazine, showed up in Peru. And he said he had done a study of the of the world weather patterns, had decided that Peru probably had some of the cleanest and best waves in the world. So he came down to surf and we met him. And then in 61, I think it was, or maybe it was 62, he came to Peru again and he brought the first copies of Surfer magazine and that had pictures of Hawaii's big waves of Sunset Beach and so as soon as I saw those pictures I knew that I had to go there (laughs) and so that was probably 1961 and I made it to Hawaii in 1963 and then in 1964, I got news from Peru that they were going to hold the first official World Surfing Championships in 1965, and that they were going to send me a ticket and they were inviting me. Wow. Because I had won the 1963 Peruvian Big Wave uh, Surfing Championships. So since I had won in 63, they decided that I should participate in the official World Surfing Championships in 65. So they sent me a ticket. (laughs) And so I I went back to Peru. But by then I had been living on the North Shore of Hawaii for two winters. So I had a lot of experience in big waves, having spent two winters in Hawaii. And I was very fortunate in that the day of the contest, which was actually two days, they had the biggest waves that anybody had ever seen at that spot until that point. Wow. So they were very big days. You know, by today's standards, they'd probably call it 8 to 12 feet. But in those days, most surf contests were held in, you know, shoulder or head high waves. Mm-hmm. So having head, having surf that was double overhead and bigger was a surprise to everybody. And it turned out to be a, an advantage for the Hawaiians and the people that had big wave experience. And I was fortunate enough to be one of them. Wow. 
at the time, what were the judges, um, what were their criteria for actually winning a contest? That's a very good question. Since this was the first official World Surfing Championship, it had been organized by a new organization that was named the International Surfing Federation. And what the International Surfing Federation did is it paid for the way of the top surfers from all of the countries that had organized surfing at that point. And it also paid for a judge from each of those countries. And so they had a meeting before the contest, and actually they had the meeting at the house of Pancho, who was the big wave a Peruvian surfing champion at that time still. They had a meeting at Pancho's house, and all the judges, I guess, I was not there, they spent a, probably several hours discussing how they should judge the contest, mm -hmm. and they agreed on how they would judge it. And I, I may kind of remember, they decided upon was that in order to get the highest amount of points on a wave, a surfer should catch the tallest wave and surf it, ride it for the greatest distance in the most critical part of the wave, doing as much functional maneuvers as possible. That's really interesting. It is. And I just read the other day that, you know, the, the new big wave circuit that is in effect right now, they have a very similar description really? of what the surfer should do to get the greatest amount of points. Oh, and I think the only main change is that they double the amount of points on their best wave or something like that. Okay, that's incredible. That's really interesting, though, because professional surfing is just so different nowadays. Well, it's still based on big waves and how the maneuvers and everything, but the maneuvers... That the, the criteria and the, and the actual hierarchy of the maneuvers have completely changed nowadays. It's incredible. So moving on, moving on to, um, so you, you were a world champion in 65. And what, what happened after that? Did you sort of go around the world a touring? Was there a world tour at the time? There was no world tour at the time, but I'll tell you the story. Actually, that's a good story as well. <laughs> so I won the world championship. And a Peruvian man who owned a company that made high-quality business suits approached me, and he said that uh, he wanted to get me under contract and, you know, pay me some money. And uh, if I remember, he would pay me some money and he would have me under contract and then if he was able to get me certain opportunities, he would make money as I made money. Oh, nice. The first sort of spons sponsorship. Yes, a sponsorship of sorts. So it sounded very nice. And, of course, I was very interested. And we signed the contract. 
And he made arrangements on the way, on my way back to Hawaii for me to meet in Hollywood with the vice president of Metro Golden Mayor, which was a big movie company. And so I remember stopping in L.A. and, you know, going to this movie studio. And as I was walking into this studio, there was this long hallway that had these big pictures of Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley and, you know, these people hanging on the wall. So I get down to the end of the corridor and there's this secretary there. And she tells me, Mr. So-and-so is expecting you, you know, please go ahead. Mm -hmm. So I walk in and there's this man sitting behind this very big desk. And, you know, we have a short talk. And he says, well, you'll be wanting to move to L.A. and take acting classes. So, you know, I thought about it for a minute. And I said, well, you know, thank you so much, but I've never considered being an actor. You know, it's not something that I'm interested in. I don't think I'd be very good at it since I've never had any interest in it. (laughs) And I love surfing and I'm going back to Hawaii. So he kind of scratched his head and he said well this is very unusual (laughs) he said nobody's ever turned me down before so i said well i'm not turning you down i said excuse me i'm not turning you down it's just that you know i i want to continue doing what i love doing and if you ever make a a surfing movie in hawaii please keep me in mind (laughs) incredible yeah so then I went back to Hawaii and what I hadn't realized you know like I said I had been surfing big waves in Hawaii for two winters Mm -hmm. but now I was going back as the big wave surfing champion and I didn't realize it until I got back but once I was back in Hawaii when the waves got really big And they got really big quite often. All of the other big wave surfers would look at me (laughs) like, okay, world champion, let's see what you can do. (laughs) That's that's, that's really fun. And so you were sort of, everybody was testing you and sort of. Exactly. And, and, you know, in those days, there were no leashes and there was no lifeguards and there was no jet skis. And you'd paddle out and. You know, you, you paddled out and you had to paddle back in. Nobody was going to help you or save you. So I ended up getting myself into a lot of very scary situations. But fortunately, I made it. That sounds terrifying, Felipe. In fact, when we were offline, you mentioned that you had a near-death experience. Do you think you could tell us a bit more about it? That was in Hawaii, a place called Laniakea. And it was a very interesting thing, the kind of a thing where I saw this amazing light. And in the distance, there was a body that was floating. 
but I was more interested in the in the light because the light was so beautiful. And at some point, I had a thought. My thought was, I wonder whose body that is. And so when I had that thought, I turned away from the light and I looked at the body. And it was very far away, maybe 40 feet away. And so it was just very still. But when I looked at it, it started moving. At first, it moves very slowly. And then it moved very fast and it came right up to me so that it was right in front of me. You know, I could touch it, but I couldn't tell who it was because they had come at me backwards. So all I could see was the back of somebody's head and, you know, somebody's Mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. Then suddenly it turned around and it had my face. And at that point, I felt this very intense feeling in the pit of my stomach, like somebody had punched me in the stomach. And then the next thing I knew, I was underwater swimming for the surface. My goodness, that is amazing. And you really did have that. And that, that so you saw the light and, and you didn't go, you go, it went back to the body. That is amazing. That- <laughs> That is just an incredible experience, and it could be enough to put anybody off surfing for forever. You remember the friend that I had in Peru, the young man that was about my age? Mm -hmm. His nickname was Shiggy. Shiggy. And he came, you know, I'm, I'm tying this in because there was a lot of fear in those days when you went out into Big Surf, because the surf was huge and, you know, a lot of people were drowning. Hmm. And actually, my friend Shiggy came over from Peru and he died surfing pipeline. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, it was very sad. He died at age 21 and he ended up being the first person to ever die at pipeline. That must be really traumatic for for um, because he was your mate that you grew up with, basically. How yes. did you how did you cope with sort of get, getting back in the water and? Well, I guess the same as I did on the near ex, near death experience that I told you about, mm-hmm. which was I just had the old story in my head that when the horse bucks you off, you just have to get right back on it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's very important. It's very uh, yeah, important. otherwise, it was such an important, it is such an important part of my life that I was more afraid that if I didn't deal with it immediately, it might affect the way... I dealt with that part of my life. Mm, mm. Absolutely. And so um, fast forwarding to 1974, when you surfed a tsunami, oh, this is an incredible story. Um, what Could you tell us what happened that morning? Okay. I was in Peru and the same, it's funny, these people keep coming up. The mm-hmm. same person that took me to Club Waikiki, mm-hmm that I told you about, the family friend. Him and I became, he was my best friend 
that was not my age. You know, she was the best friend that was my age, and Petey is the name of the person we're now talking about. Was about 10 or maybe 12 years older than I was, but he was my best friend. And so, although I was living in Hawaii, I would go back to Peru about once a year during the time that the surf was best. Because that's a time when the surf starts dying out in Hawaii. And I was about, I think I was about 30 years of age. And just like now, there was a group of us that wanted to ride the biggest wave in the world. And... uh, we had all surfed, you know, the group of us had surfed Waimea, and some friends of mine had found a wave in Peru that had the kind of a setup that I believed it would be surfable at a bigger size than Waimea. Right. So is that Pico Alto? Pico Alto, correct. I was in Peru, and Petey and I were training, hoping to get very big Pico Alto and to be able to to know that we had surfed the biggest waves in the world. And so we were there, we were training on a daily basis, waiting for Pico Alto to get big. And this one morning, every morning we'd get up very early and we'd train and we'd run. And we'd run past Pico Alto to check it out. And this morning it was very, there was no waves practically. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's interesting. Peru has so much surf that if the surf is below head high, in those days, we would say the surf is flat. Yeah. <laughs> That's ironic. That's amazing. On that day, the surf was head high or shoulder high, so we considered it flat. And after we finished our workout and our run, we said, well, what should we do? And although it was flat, you know, there were shoulder-high waves, and we decided we'd go out for a paddle and catch some small waves. And we put on our wetsuits because it was the beginning of winter, and we were carrying our boards down the beach, and that's when the earthquake hit. And we were looking at the waves... And all of a sudden, my friend starts yelling and pointing out to sea. And I've known him for about 20 years at that time, and I've never heard him yell. So I'm kind of surprised that he's carrying on like that. So I'm staring at him to see what's what's gotten into him. And he's pointing out to sea and, and, you know, yelling. And after I look at him for a couple, you know, for a few seconds, I guess, then I look to where he's pointing, and there was an island that goes out maybe three quarters of a kilometer. The island almost joins the coast and then heads out to sea for about a kilometer, roughly. And there were some people standing on top of that island, And they were moving very strangely. 
And so, you know, that was interesting. What were those people doing and why were they moving like that? Was that the earthquake that had started on the island and it was sort of coming towards you? That's exactly it. The earthquake was coming from the ocean towards us. And while we were watching these people, all of a sudden there was this incredible noise. I mean, incredibly loud noise. It was like a jet plane was just a few feet behind you or a, a huge train was going by. Some, You know, it just it sound like you've never heard before. And there was nothing happening other than this incredible sound. And then the ground started shaking. And so uh, this was a little winter town in those days, a little town that would close down in the winter. In the summertime, people would go there for their summer, you know, to be on the beach for the summer. And then when the summer ended, they would board up the houses and leave. So the only people that were on the beach at that point were me and my friend, and when the earthquake started, he took off running. And since I was with him, I took off running behind him. <laughs> but at some point, he turned a corner, and I stopped. And I thought to myself, you know, where, where are you running to? You can't run away from an earthquake. So now he was gone, and I was by myself. And so I immediately thought, okay, how do people get hurt or get killed in an earthquake? And so I, I looked all around me. I looked up above me. And fortunately, there were no high rises. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm not going to have any building fall on me. And then I thought, what else happens in earthquakes? And I had seen movies where the ground opens up. And so I thought, I'll... I'll hold on to my surfboard, and if the ground opens up, I'll bridge it. You know, I won't fall in. And so, while I'm thinking about this, I'm also thinking, well, it's an earthquake. You know, it'll be over very soon. Just relax and, you know, make sure nothing is going to fall on you. And the ground kept shaking, and although there were no high-rises, there were a lot of walls because all the houses had walls around them. And these walls started falling over. And every time a wall would fall on the ground, this big cloud of dust would go up in the air. And so, you know, I kept telling myself, relax, you know, calm, be calm. There's nothing that can fall on you. It's amazing that you had that sort of the presence of the, the spirit to sort of say, well, you know, just keep calm, relax, don't panic. Is that, do you think that's due to your training as a big wave surfer? Uh, I'm sure it didn't hurt, but I hadn't thought about it before. Uh, I can't <laughs> think what else you could do, you know. I mean, <laughs> you, it's out of your control. Yeah. So I kept saying, relax, relax, it'll be over soon, but it wasn't being over. And these walls kept falling over. And then a question entered into my mind, which was, okay, what if it's not just an earthquake? You know, what could it be if it's not just an earthquake because it's not ending? And so my next thought was, well, 
it could be the end of the world. <laughs> uh, the earthquake lasted a minute and 48 seconds, I believe. Oh, my God. That must have been the longest minute and 48 seconds of your life. Pretty much. You know, I mean, when you consider what happens when they just last a few seconds, I mean, yeah. people, it, it's it's quite a startling experience. Mm. Anyway, by the time it ended, I was pretty convinced that it was the end of the world, you know, because they had gone on forever. But... Fortunately, it did end, and when it ended, I, I kind of followed the path that my friend Petey had taken, and I found him, and I said, Petey, why did you run? Where could you run off to? And he said, well, when I was a child, I was taught that if there's an earthquake, you either get under a doorway or you run to the middle of the street. So he said, I ran to the middle of the street. So I said, okay, I understand now. And as we're walking to his house, because his house was close by, uh, he said, we can't go to Lima. Lima is about an hour away, is uh, the capital of Peru. And I said, why can't we go to Lima? And he answered, well, the last big earthquake Lima was destroyed and there were fires everywhere. So I said, okay, then I agree, you know, we can't go to Lima. So, you know, we walked a little further and he asked me, he said, what should we do? And you got to remember that we were in Peru looking for the, to surf the biggest waves in the world. And we had a board under our arm and we had our wits <laughs> on. So I answered, let's go surfing. That is crazy. That is amazing. After having oh, this, almost dying. Funny part. Here's <laughs> the funny part. I thought that he was going to answer, you're crazy. We can't go surfing. And I would have said, okay. And I would have dropped it. But instead, he said, okay. And when he said, okay, I thought, wow, you know, he's willing to paddle out with me. And that earthquake could have generated some big waves. And we're here looking for big waves. And, you know, we don't have a lot of time. This is like an opportunity where we have to decide now. We can't go think about it. Because we we might miss whatever is coming. And so I said, okay, let's paddle out. So, you know, I did have some thoughts on our way to to the beach. I did try to determine how big a wave that earthquake that had lasted a minute and 48 seconds could generate. Oh, my goodness. And based on experiences that I had had in Hawaii, because I had by then been in Hawaii for about 10 years, and there had been several tsunami alerts. So based on that, I had determined that, yeah, we might, you know, we will get some big waves. But I figured they might be between 10 and 20 feet. 
And I had already surfed waves that were bigger than 20 feet. So I figured we could handle it. This is, this is crazy. This is right. Just... So we paddled out. You know, you had nothing to lose. You just sort of survived an earthquake. So what was there to lose apart from well, a great ride? Yeah, you know, but here's the way the story worked out. So we paddled out. And as soon as we got out there, my friend caught a wave. And he paddled back to me a few seconds later. And he said, I want to go in. So I said, we just got out. Why would you want to go in? <laughs> and he said, well, that little wave that I got just held me down longer than I've ever been held down before. And that's very weird. So I want to go in. So I said, okay, well, at least let's catch a wave in. So he said, okay. So now we're sitting there waiting to catch a wave in. And the next thing I know, he says, Felipe, there's a strong current pulling us out to sea. So I said, oh, oh, that's not good. Okay, <laughs> let's go in. And so I'm paddling towards shore because of what he just said. And remember I said there was an island off to yeah. the side where we were? Well, as I'm paddling towards shore, I happened to look sideways. And by having that island there, I could tell that I was paddling towards shore, but I was going backwards out to sea. And so, of course, I immediately thought, uh-oh, that's not good. <laughs> For the 10th time in the day. So now I started paddling as hard as I could. And I was afraid to look towards the island because I knew that if... I, I knew I could not paddle any faster. Yeah. And if I was going backwards now, I knew that we were going to have some serious problems. And so I tried very hard not to look, but I had to eventually turn and look. And we were going backwards, going, we were getting pulled out to sea so fast that there was no sense in paddling anymore. So I sat up on my board and I, I now started doing some deep breathing because now I figured, okay, th this is very serious and I'm going to have to make some decisions in the near future that may decide whether we live or die. Yeah. So I'd better oxygen, I'd better, you know, have a lot of oxygen in my system and, and think clearly. Mm. So anyway, we got pulled out to sea. The island, if you remember, went out about a kilometer. We got pulled out to sea about another kilometer, so a kilometer beyond the end of the island. And, you know, I had obviously never been out that far in this place. And way out there, there were these boils coming off the bottom. What do you mean by the boils? When you go out in places where, you know, when you're surfing in places where there's an uneven bottom, mm -hmm. 
you see these circular things that are almost like whirlpools, but they're not really pulling you down, but it's the water moving in a circular motion, which is normal when you're in a shallow place. And we were out two kilometers out and to see these things, these circular things coming off the bottom, it was just very, very strange. And then to make things even more strange, chop is normally a foot tall and, you know, and they move in a certain pattern. But this time we were two kilometers out at sea and the chop, instead of being a foot tall, were about eight foot tall. Eight foot. Eight foot. And instead of having a pattern, they moved in every direction at once. So it was like being in this ocean that had gone mad and was doing things that you've never seen. And it was very, very scary. So now my estimation, which had been that the wave might be 10 to 20 feet, changed. And now my estimation was that the wave could be 100 to 200 feet. And so all of a sudden, things were very different. And my friend said, let's paddle out and look for a ship. And I had surfed that place for years. I had never seen a ship. So I, I was pretty certain we were not going to find a ship. And I had read somewhere that the Peruvian is called Socalo Continental, which kind of means the underwater the continental shelf. I had read that in Peru, the continental shelf goes out very, very far. I can't remember if it was a hundred miles or, okay. you know, a lot of miles. So that told me that if there was a hundred or 200 foot tsunami coming, it would break way before we, in other words, we had no chance of paddling beyond where that was going to get us. Mm. So I figured that our best chance was to get back to the beach. And although we knew we couldn't get back the way we had come, I thought, well, maybe we can cross the bay. And on the other side of the bay was the big wave spot that Pancho and Shiggy and I used to surf all the time. And that place breaks about a kilometer and a half out at sea. And I figured if we could get to the other side and we could catch one of those waves, that would take us three quarters of the way back to shore. And that was my best idea at that point. So to make a long story short, all of a sudden we were making headway and we, we were able to paddle in the direction of the other side of the bay. And so things were looking good for, for a time there. And I was just looking out to the horizon 
and hoping that the 100-foot wave was not on its way. And eventually we got very close to the area where the waves break. It's called Contiki. Mm -hmm. That's the name of that surfing spot. And so I stopped and I told my friend, okay, Petey, here's the plan. We're going to paddle into the impact zone. We're going to catch the first wave that you can, whether it's a wave or white water or whatever. We're going to take it as far towards the beach as it will take us. And then we're going to do our best to get to the beach and I'll see you on the beach. Mm. And so I was a little bit ahead of him. So I paddled into the impact zone first. And all of a sudden there was a wave there. And I paddled as hard as I could and I caught the wave. And, you know, so what do you do when you catch a wave? I stood up and I dropped down and I turned. <laughs> and as I turned, I thought, what are you doing? You know, you're not supposed to be surfing. You're supposed to just head towards shore. <laughs> this is survival, but you have to make a nice of turn and... <laughs> Right, but here's the interesting part. As soon as I had that thought, what are you doing? The next thought was, this may be the last wave you ever catch. You might not make it to the beach. That's and if that's the case, then you better get the most out of this ride. And so I did a couple more turns. <laughs> and then... The wave broke, and so I lay down in the white water and rode it as far as I could, and it took me three-fourths of the way towards the beach. So now, you know, I kept looking back, and I, 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 I was not seeing the 100-foot tsunami, so I figured, okay, things are looking good, and now I'm paddling for shore as fast as I can, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see a wave throw a fishing boat. Actually, the fishing the wave was standing up. The fishing boat was flying huh? through the air, and it impacted on a cliff. And it went in an instant from being a boat to being small pieces of wood. And then there was no more boat. There was just little pieces of wood. Of and I told myself, don't even think about that. Just get on the beach and think about it after you're on the beach. Yeah, yeah. So, so did you get to the beach? I got to the beach. And now I'm standing on the beach and I'm hoping my friend can make it because he's still in the ocean. And I can see him but there's still no guarantee that he's going to make it. And then he made it. Wow. And so, so what was the, what kind of, what was the morphology of the wave of a tsunami compared to the big waves that you, you're used to surfing in Waimea or, or in Pico Alto? Was there a real difference in terms of? This is very interesting. This is very interesting because the wave was exactly the same as a normal wave. And in later years, after I had told, I did not tell that story for about 10 years. 
And the reason I did not tell it is that while it would have been a great story and a great adventure, hundreds of people were killed, mm. not by the tsunami, but by the earthquake. And, you know, out of respect for mm. the people that were killed, I didn't feel it was right to, to tell this story that while it was a great story, you know, it didn't compare to people dying. So I never told the story until 10 years later when an Australian uh, writer, surfer writer, asked me a question. He said, what was the most unusual experience you've had in your surfing life? So that's when I told the story. Wow. And then a bunch of years later, an oceanographer in California stated that it was impossible to surf a tsunami. And, you know, I had already released the story, and so now either I was lying or he was wrong. And so I ended up making contact with him, and the outcome of our conversation was in my mind, there was no doubt that what we had served was a tsunami. And the reason was that half an hour before we got pulled out to sea, the surf was shoulder high. And then half an hour later, the wave that I caught was as big as a two-story house. And the next day, there were pictures in the newspaper of Lima of fishing boats in the town center square, mm. uh, you know. And it, that got washed up. Yeah, they got washed up into the center of town. So that was obviously a tsunami. And so anyway, the oceanographer ended up uh, fessing up that the reason he had said that is he figured that eventually there's going to be a tsunami in Southern California. And if surfers think it's surfable, a lot of surfers are going to go out there and, you know, possibly some are going to die. Mm. And he figured that if he said that it was impossible to surf a tsunami, that that might save lives. And so I said, well, we can use my story, which is, uh, it's a very bad idea. Yes, of course. <laughs> bad love. And maybe that will. So at the, at what was the magnitude of that earthquake that lasted? Um... To the best of my ability on the research that I did about it, it was either in the high sevens or in the low eights. Wow. That is really because it's all exponential. So the difference between a that, seven and an eight is red. Correct. Yeah. Wow. And it, like I said, actually, interestingly enough, thousands of people were killed in Lima, and the way that most of them died was the earthquake lasted so long that they had time to decide where to run to. And a lot of people ran into the churches. And the churches were typically old buildings. 
And so the churches toppled on top of the people. Wow. Oh, that's so and sad. And that was, yes, very sad. Wow. Wow. Well, that is an incredible story, Philippe. It's just um, mind-blowing. And um, you're so lucky to have come out alive, and you're, you're from Pity as well. But uh, thank you for sharing. It's, a, it's an amazing story. Do you think that um, the fact that you've spent a life filled with adventure and adrenaline and incredible achievements, um, is that one of the reasons that you have started to study longevity, to just make most of life as long as it lasts? You ask excellent questions. <laughs> okay. Now, in retrospect, I can see that I used my fear because I did feel a lot of fear to kind of energize me. And that seemed to work very well for many years. But then at some point in my 50s, it kind of all caught up with me. Ah, okay. And I had many health problems, one of which is called ulcerative colitis. And I ended up having to go to a specialist who told me, I'm sorry to inform you that I can't, I, we can't cure what you have because it's, it's a disease that we don't quite understand. And in a sense, we believe that it's the body attacking itself. Oh, my God. And he said, there is some, he said, some people are taking an experimental drug and it's, it's made some people better and it's made some people worse and it's made some people blind. Mm. And he said, and if you want, I can get some for you. But other than that, there's nothing I can suggest. So I said, well, thank you. You know, I'm certainly not going to take that <laughs> drug. And I walked out of there rather depressed because, you know, the doctor was telling me that there was nothing that I could do. And I was very fortunate. I had a surfer friend who was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And he was what is called an orthomolecular doctor, which basically means they cure things with high amounts of vitamins. Oh, I've heard about that. Yes, that's really interesting. Yes. So he said to me, well, he said, uh, some things you just have to give the body time and it will cure itself. And he said, and in the meantime, you can come to my apartment and I will give you high amounts of vitamin C intravenously. Really? And he said, and, you know, that may help and it can't hurt. 
So it's something that we should try. So I, I was ready for anything that would make me blind. So, you know, he was very nice and I had several high vitamin C treatments. Would that be like a kilo of my vitamin C or? It would certainly be, uh, let's see, thousands of grams, really? high amounts. Uh, and eventually I got better. Wow. And I haven't had it since. But that experience, along with several other problems and two shoulder operations, where on the second one the doctor told me that I should give up surfing. <gasps> That caused me to decide that I had to find a solution because I did not want to give up surfing. And so that started me off. It was uh, that started me off on a new path that was trying to build my health and see what I could do to stay healthy and surf as long as possible. And so did that path take you to know about what a blue zone is? Exactly. That path took me to reading and visiting many of the blue zones. And so, so could we remind the listeners what a blue zone is? Certainly. There are places in the world where people reach very advanced ages, typically 100 years or more in good health and active mm -hmm. and uh, so they're they've been referred to as blue zones and Costa Rica is one of them okay and there's a place in California uh, that's one of them and there's places in Ecuador and Peru and Bali and several other places that are considered blue zones so I visited all the places that I just mentioned. Really? And, uh, you know, studied the people and studied books. And it turned out, perhaps by accident, that I have been very fortunate. And during my life, I have met about six surfers who were surfing into their late 80s or their early 90s. One of them was actually surfing until 96. That's incredible. It is pretty amazing. And when you consider that science and medicine are ad advancing at a tremendous pace, I've read that the knowledge uh, for medicine is now doubling every two years. Really? So that leads me to believe that if 40 years ago, people could surf into their 90s, there's absolutely no reason in the world why we can't extend that a little bit mm -hmm. and be surfing at 100 or more. So, so today, would you mind if I asked you how old you are and if you're still surfing? No, of course not. <laughs> uh, I turned 75. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was good. I turned 75 last year mm -hmm. and the last time I surfed was yesterday morning today oh. I haven't surfed because the surf is uh, tiny <laughs> that's brilliant so what so having studied all these blue zones and visited them what what the what were the conclusions that you came up with okay 
from the blue zones, the conclusions are mainly that those people are very active. They're not sitting around all day. They're not driving in cars. You know, they're walking a lot. Uh, they're working outdoors, typically. Uh, they're not overeating. Mm. They're eating real food that, you know, they grow in their backyard or close by. Uh, they have good community relationships. That's really important. And uh, I think, yeah, they, they eat real food, they're active, they're positive, uh, they have close family and community ties, and they live a healthy lifestyle, and they often rarely visit a doctor. Hmm. And in terms of the, the, um, the diet, is there a, um, a lot of animal-based diets, um, or is it, it depends on the, on, that, the, on the blue zones? That varies, but typically speaking, I would say they eat very little meat, right. red meat anyway. You know, they do have their chickens and mm -hmm. actually uh, when they, of course, when they live by the ocean, they they eat a lot of fish, which there is no doubt is good for your health as long as the water is not polluted. Mm -hmm. But actually, those things are easy to figure out. Yeah. I find that in order to get optimum health and better results, you actually would combine the uh, the wisdom of the past with the things that are being discovered at universities around the world on a current basis. And there's, <clears throat> there's a great organization that is called the Life Extension Foundation and they're, and they also have vitamins that they high quality vitamins that they make, and they're a great source of information. Do you add extra vitamins to your diet every day? I do. Right. I find that, uh, as a matter of fact, I'll give you an example. Surfers spend a lot of time outdoors. And they often have a growth on their eye mm. that is called a pteridium. And if you're outdoors a lot and you're exposed to the glare, those growths keep growing and they end up affecting your vision and affecting your eye. And so many years ago, because I, w I was always interested in health for some reason, uh, I had a pteridium in one of my eyes, and it was constantly bloodshot when mm. I would come out of the ocean. And I read somewhere that if you took high amounts of vitamin C, that the pteridium would either stop growing or would go away. Really? And so I started 
taking high amounts of vitamin C and I started protecting my eyes with goggles mm-hmm. when I go surfing and my pteridium went away. Wow. That's that's incredible I, because um, most, most surfers are sort of um, uh, recommended to do surgery and all sorts of really sort of complicated operations where... And it, you know, you just need high doses of vitamin C. So, what kind of high doses would we be talking about? Uh, I have taken different amounts of high doses over my life, but typically, you're talking about. Let me grab a bottle right here. <laughs> just take me a second. Typically, I'm taking somewhere between two and five grams a day. Wow. And and you know the um the 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 medical doctors all all say if you take too many vitamins it has adverse side effects and things like that. What's your opinion on on that? Do you think I, I don't want to go into the sort of conspiracy theories or anything? But have you got an opinion? I have an interesting opinion on that. <laughs> First of all, doctors take basically very little classes on vitamins in medical school right so if they don't cover that information in medical school or at least they didn't in the past you can't expect them to be very knowledgeable and secondly although most doctors do say that i have read that in their private life they take vitamins too yeah it's very interesting yeah i guess so i guess so 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 what is your could could you sort of explain the the day in the life of felipe pomar as in um your daily routine um maybe what you add as supplements just to keep your your joints going and you know after having had shoulder operations and things like that how you how you stay um how you still remain flexible and um and have the paddling power. Uh, uh, how do you, how do you sort of keep that going on a daily basis? Very good. Uh, I will try hard to go to bed before ten o'clock. Right. And if I manage that, then I will typically wake up around five o'clock or a little bit before that. A first thing in the morning, I will drink some typically water with lime and some apple cider vinegar. Okay. And uh, then I will do 15 or 20 minutes of what I call warm-up exercises, which have to do some stretching and I'm not really a yoga person, but I do have some exercises that have been taught to me by people that knew or practiced yoga. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the exercises is definitely to strengthen my back because I used to have back problems and I don't have them anymore, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful. (laughs) Changes your life. Right. And at the end, I do some sun salutations. Oh, and I don't like sit-ups. Yeah. So I do a few every day. That way I figure I'll never have to do too many as long as I do a few every day. (laughs) That's a good philosophy. Right. 
And then I don't have, okay, so then I go check the surf. Mm -hmm. Obviously. And I haven't had any food other than the water with the lime and the apple cider vinegar. Oh, and some vitamins. Right. Okay, so I have that. And then I go surfing. And if the surf is nice, I probably won't get back in for the first meal, which is breakfast, until about 11. Mm -hmm. And so that means that there's been a bunch of hours between my last meal, which was maybe at 7 or 8 until 11. So there's been that fasting period that from the reading I've done, it has some very important benefits for health. Okay, yeah. So you're really breaking the fast at 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, Correct. Yeah. So I, I'm doing most of my eating in a window that is maybe, what is that, from 11 to 7. I'm eating on an eight-hour window, and so I'm not eating for for most of the day yeah. when you take into consideration the evening. That's interesting. That's really interesting. And you you actually manage to keep the energy going even when you're in the water. Um, not Here's having... a really interesting part. Hmm. When I'm surfing, I don't notice. I don't. I'm not hungry at all. Right. You know, of course. Even when I get home, I'm looking forward to eating, but I'm not really hungry. Yeah, yeah. But if I don't go surfing, all of a sudden I'm very hungry way before 11 o'clock. Yeah, <laughs> I, I understand that. Yeah, I get the same feeling. And, um, and so uh, that's really interesting. And then you, so you have an eating period which is um, very limited when you think about it. So between 11 and 7 o'clock in the evening. That's Correct. Really so that means I will only have two meals because if I have a nice breakfast, but let's say I'm done having breakfast by 12, then I'm not hungry again until four or five mm -hmm. and I'll have my second meal then and I'm done for the day. That's brilliant. That's it's a good, good way of saving time and saving washing up as well. That's, That's true. And it's also a great way of not eating too much. Yes. Yeah. Which is one of the problems in the world right now. <laughs> yes. And um, what do you uh, think about the importance of sleep in this whole Huge. daily cycle? Huge. Huge. It's, it's amazing. Not only sleep, but getting sleep at the right times. Mm. It, it seems that the body produces certain hormones at certain times and if you're staying up very late you're missing some of that growth hormone production and that over time can have some serious consequences so the hours that you get before midnight the hours of sleep that you get before midnight are quite important okay okay that's that makes sense, actually. Yes, when you consider the way that humans lived for hundreds of thousands of years, mm. you realize that if you take, for example, that idea of getting up early and going out 
without eating. And it's probably what primitive men people did. They go out and hunt for food. Yeah. You know, so you don't have food until you've gone out and found it. Yeah, yeah. And they're also out in the sunshine most of the day. Uh, they're not stuck exactly. in front of the screens. And um, yeah, I guess we have a lot to learn on what happened before. So, but what's really amazing is that this whole routine that you have followed over life has um, has enabled you to beat your your record in a paddle race. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, perhaps because I was a swimmer be before I became a surfer, and there's discipline involved and training. I was always a very competitive, a very good paddler. And as a result, I won a lot of races. Peru used to have an international surfing contest every year where the top surfers from around the world would come and compete. And we had paddle races and surfing competitions and you know it was a week of different events that had to do with the ocean and there's this book that was published in Peru that has all of the winning times of you know the different okay. competitions that took place at this international contest so when in my 50s, I had all of these health problems and I was told that I should not surf anymore. Uh, I was also told that I should not work out anymore with anything that has to do with the uh, upper body. And so I, I decided, okay, I will follow some of the instructions. You know, I won't work out, but I will surf. So years later, I saw this television program where these people were very fit and they were working out. And I realized that I felt very well. I felt healthy. I felt like I could do things that I had been told not to do. I had already been following my health program at that point for about close to 20 years. And so I, I was sitting talking to a friend and he turned to me and he said, I'm having trouble popping to my feet. He said, are you having problems popping to your feet? And I said, no, not only am I not having problems popping to my feet, but I'm surfing better than I was 20 years ago. Isn't that amazing? Uh, he got upset. He thought I was, you know, giving him a hard time. <laughs> so I was driving home after that conversation, and I thought, wow, you know, I know that I'm surfing better than I was 20 years ago, and I think that's kind of unusual, but it's hard to prove. Mm -hmm. How do you prove that? And then all of a sudden I thought, well, okay, I can't prove that I'm surfing better than I was 20 years ago, but I might be able to prove that I'm paddling better than I was 50 years ago oh my because God. 
Yeah, because those times exist, and it's, you know, it's a six-mile race, and if I do it again and I improve my time, that will prove to people that I am capable of doing things better than I was when I was in my 20s. So I announced it in advance, and I had the Peruvian Surfing Federation organize a paddle and time me, and uh, I surprised myself. I mean, I felt like I could do it, but I didn't know that I could do it. Uh And when it was all said and done, I improved on my time that was 45 years earlier by two minutes on a six-mile paddle. That is amazing, Felipe. That's incredible. And um, so how did you feel when you when you found out the time that you did? Well, actually, I'll tell you the details on the story. My plan was to try to beat my time, let's see, from 62. In 1962, I also won that race. Okay. And I was 19 years old then. So I was trying to to beat that time. And I had, you know, a good paddler that I assumed I would be able to knee paddle because I, I of course, trained to try to improve on my time. And the way I trained was by knee pad, by alternating between prone paddling and knee paddling. So I would, you know, paddle laying down and then jump on my knees for a while and then go prone again. I got to Peru at a time of the year when it was very cold. And it ended up that I did not try the board. I was overconfident. And I figured, you know, I, I, I'll just do the race. I don't need to go out and try the board. So this was but, the, the last the last time you did the weight race. You didn't try out the board before. Correct. Wow. I I asked the person that had built it if I could knee paddle it, and he said yes. So I figured, okay, you know, no problem. <laughs> and when I actually got into the race, I realized that every time I got on my knees, the the ocean was rough. Oh. And every time I got on my knees, I would tip over. Oh, no. So you, yes, were, so you were bound to have to stay prone and stay like that. I was forced to stay prone the whole time. And so obviously that affected my time. So I did not beat my time that I had set when I was 19. <laughs> but I did improve on my time when I also won the race when I was like 24 or 26. That's amazing, Felipe. That's it was incredible. 1968. <laughs> so I, I improved on my time of 45 years earlier, but not on my time of 50 years earlier. Right. But that's, well, I don't think that you should feel feel um, uncomfortable about that, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah, I, did, I didn't feel bad. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um well, I guess, Philippe, we could sort of move on about uh, talk, to, to to let you talk about your um, surf till you till hundred. Could you tell us a bit more about your um, side business? 
Sure. Uh, before I went to Peru on that paddle that we just talked about, I trained with a friend of mine who is a health researcher. He worked for many years with a very well-known anti-aging doctor called Barry Sears. And so my friend, his name is Tom Woods. He's a health researcher and a surfer. So when I decided to train for that six-mile paddle, and in training together, I also found that I could do as many chin-ups at age 70 as I could do when I was in school at age 17. So that's actually one of the things that gave me the confidence to believe that I could improve on my six-mile paddle time. But Tom and I, in our training, he also did the paddle. We were getting, we were getting so surprised by the results we were getting, and we had come, we had come to the same conclusions independently because you know I just met Tom a few years ago and yet he's also into vitamins he's also into health he's also into the value of having a hormonal balance mm. and so when we started training together and we got these amazing results which were certified by the paddle in Peru we decided you know, this is amazing and we should share it. It's worth sharing. Yeah. It, it's very valuable. You know, we said there is society has a false concept, which we call it the aging myth, hmm. which basically says that, you know, when you're 65, you're ready to retire and, you know, your life is over. And uh, from then on, you're going downhill. Yeah. And we, we, we were surprised to find that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And if it doesn't have to be that way, and we know that it doesn't have to be that way, that's worth sharing. So we were developing a program and that concept, and then we hooked up with Jeff Hackman, who is the person, one of the founders of the company Quicksilver, mm -hmm. which, you know, is a huge company, not only in the surfing industry, but everywhere else. Yeah. And he was the top, the top competitive surfer in the late 60s and early 70s. And then he's traveled all around the world and, you know, he founded Quicksilver Europe. He realized that Tom and I were into something that was enabling us to do things that nobody else was doing mm -hmm. at our age. And he got interested. And so he's part of our program. Wow. And so the three of us are just getting started in sharing this program with with we're going to start with surfers and our 
plan is to then extend it to anybody who's interested in extending their life and extending their health. That's brilliant. And so what is the form? Have you written a book together or have you got a sort of, uh, you join a program and you get um, coaching? We've developed the program. Mm -hmm. It's so new that the website is going to be up in the next week. Oh, wow. This is cool. Cool timing. Yes. (laughs) And we're going to start by doing retreats. And we're going to do one together in Peru in May. And we're going to do some other ones on Kauai in the future. But we're also going to have something on the Internet where we can share our information with people. And, and what kind of demographics um, could could join you on, on your retreats? Is it people... Um, I, I guess it's important to l- learn about longevity as soon as possible, basically. But um, <laughs> right. um, uh, what, what kind of age group uh, do you target? Okay. While you're totally correct, it turns out that young people think they're bulletproof <laughs> and that they'll be healthy forever. <laughs> so it's a rare young person that is interested. Typically, I find that it's people over 50 that are most interested, but it would actually be very good for people in their 40s and even in their 30s if they happen to realize how valuable their health is. And unfortunately, it normally takes people having a health challenge, a problem, before they realize the value of health. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what's the website called? The w- website is called surftill100.com. Okay. Brilliant. Surftill, T-I-L-L, T-I-L-L. in Huanchaco, Peru. Lovely. And by the way, Huanchaco is a place where people have been riding waves for roughly 5,000 years. Yeah, the birthplace of surfing. It's amazing. That's true. But very few people are aware of it, surprisingly enough. <laughs> um, so you have Jeff Hackman and you'll have Tom as well with you doing the courses and doing the, the seminars. Is it sort of you'll have a day surfing and then you'll talk about health and classes in the evening? What, what's the sort of setup of a, a usual retreat? Correct. It's all of that, except that we're going to be flexible because when it has to do with surfing, you always have to be flexible. And we're also going to be visiting a lot of archaeological sites that exist in Peru. For example, there's a place called the Temple of the Moon. And at the Temple of the Moon, there is this amazing picture of a wave on a wall that's about 10 feet tall really yes and they have all kinds of uh, designs and decorations that are all wave related the reason why that temple is called the temple of the moon is because their main deity their main god was the moon and that's because the moon controls the the tides and their whole life revolved around 
the ocean and the waves. Surftill100.com won Chaco in May this year and there'll be an amazing experience with the archaeological um, sort of side and the history of surfing. That's incredible. Correct. And in addition to that, we will be surfing a place called Chicama. Oh, Chicama. It's my bucket list because I'm a good Okay, <laughs> which has a reputation for being the longest left in the world. But the interest here's an interesting idea. Chicama has a reputation for being the longest left in the world. Mm -hmm. And yet one hour north of Chicama, there's a wave that is longer than Chicama. Really? Yes. That's amazing. And actually, to, to, that's a really good transition because um, I believe that you're um, involved in the protection or the, the creation of surf reserves. And I wondered, I wondered if you were part of the generation of surfers that contributed to La Ley de Rompientes um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Very good. That is an excellent question. It's amazing how everything is tying in. Yes, exactly. The Ley de Rompientes had been in the works for about 12 years, but it had not yet been approved by Congress. And one of the reasons why I did that paddle that we talked about where I improved on my time, I got a lot of media attention in Peru, and one of the purposes of the paddle was to have the Ley de Rompientes approved. Okay. And perhaps it worked because it was approved a few months later. So for the listeners, um, if you want to find out more about La Ley de Rompientes, I um, could recommend an episode I recorded with Bruno Monteferi, which is episode 13. And we talk all about the Ley de Rompientes. Right. Actually, two of my good friends were the people that started the idea. And the idea took about 12 or 13 years to get approved by Congress. And so it's still ongoing, if I believe. Um, people are still... Extra beaches. In other words, for example, Huanchaco is now protected and Chicama is now protected. And several of the beaches, the one where the World Contest was held south of Lima is now protected. But since Peru has, I think, about 2,000 miles of coastline, it, you know, the surfers keep wanting to protect their beaches and it will probably keep going on for a long time, which is great. But the interesting thing is that Peru is the first country in the world that has had the beaches protected via a law at the federal level. Yeah, that's really interesting, and they're very they're very um, avant-garde in their um, in the whole sort of. Um, Felipe, I think we um, we're just about. I'd love to speak to you for like the whole day. It's just incredible the knowledge and the the experience that you've had. Um, but I guess maybe what we could we should do is maybe sort of check in in a few months' time. And um, and continue this conversation, but I think I'm gonna, we're going to have to wrap up soon. Um, but before we do, 
I wondered if you could just finish a few sentences for, that I start and you, I start the sentence and then you, you finish it with whatever you, you want to say. Um, would you be up for that? Sure. Yeah? Okay, so the first one is, I wish. I wish everybody was healthy and we lived in a, in a world where the environment and the ocean were healthy as well. That's lovely. Um, I miss. I miss. I miss good waves today. <laughs> I, I have it. It's my fault because <laughs> we're having this conversation. Well, fortunately, fortunately, it's not your fault. I picked today <laughs> because I knew that there was no surf. Oh, okay. Uh, um, I love. I love Christina. Christina. Yes, she's my fiance. We just got engaged about a week ago. Oh, that's brilliant. Congratulations. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, the last one is I want. I want. I want to share uh, this information that I think can make people's lives uh, longer and better. Brilliant. Brilliant. So before we, we, we leave, um, the plans for the future, what's the next next steps for you in the next maybe six months or so? I'm happy to share that although I think I've been very fortunate and I have had an exciting, adventurous life and I'm 75 years old, going on 76, and I believe that my best waves and my best adventures and my best life are in the future. That's lovely. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Well, Felipe, thank you ever so much for this conversation. I'm so grateful. I'm so happy to have met you and, um, and to, 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 to listen to your amazing stories. They're just uh, incredible. Uh, I, I'm sure we missed out on, you know, all your career as a property owner and you're doing things in Indonesia and all sorts of things like that. But um, maybe we can, we can schedule something else in a few months' time and um, get some updates. That's great, Amy. All right, I, then. I okay, love but... it. It's been great. <laughs> Is speaking to you and seeing you. Well, thank you ever so much, Felipe, and um, take care. Thank you. Have a lovely thank day. Bye bye. Bye bye. Wow, that was an awesome episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you check out my article on medium.com, you'll find photos of Felipe all along his career and how he looks today. And I promise you, if you take a look at a, a recent photo, you'll definitely want to enroll in his retreat as soon as possible. Felipe Pomar, Jack Hackman and Tom Woods are the surfing legends that founded Surf Till 100. And you can subscribe to their newsletter even if you don't join them in Juan Chaco in May. In any case, you can connect with Felipe and his mates at www.surftill100. So surftill, T-I-L-L, 100 in numbers.com. Felipe has a Facebook account, but he's hit the maximum number of friends. In any case, if there's anything to take from this episode, it's leave your screen alone and get out there in the open. 
The Ocean Riders podcast is a weekly podcast and I would be really thrilled if you could subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or give it a few stars or a review Um, and um, you can do the same on Spotify. If you'd like to share your story, you can connect with me at hello at theoceanriderspodcast.com or you can DM me on my Instagram account at theoceanriderspodcast. There's a Facebook group as well, so if you fancy joining in the conversation after the episode, you're welcome to. Um, the, the, the Facebook group is called the Ocean Riders Community. I've also started posting some job offers that would be perfect for surfers, so you never know, maybe you'll find your dream job there. The Ocean Riders podcast is also a Twitter account and a Facebook page, so you should be able to connect with me somehow. Uh, use my link to tr- my link tree to pave your way to your preferred social platform. The address is linktr.ee so slash the Ocean Riders podcast. In any case, all the links and the references uh, in this episode will be be available in the show notes. And if you connect to my article on medium.com, you'll find photos of Felipe and also the whole episode. Thank you, Felipe, for being such an awe-inspiring guest. And thank you for listening to this epic episode. Until next week, take care, have fun and enjoy the waves. Ciao.